0: Land and People. We are interviewing practitioners and people with ancestral ties to the land. I'm Melissa Kimara. I am a conservationist and an artist here on Hawaii Island.
1: And I'm Clay Traurnicht. I work at the University of Hawaii at Manoa in the Natural Resource Environmental Management Department. That's my my day job.
0: And uh, just to remind our listeners out there, we interview people and release our episodes about every other week. And it's pretty cool. So I do want to thank our sponsor, University of Hawaii. Made possible by a Cooperative Extension
1: uh, program at University of Hawaii at Manoa, which is part of the College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources. You, and the we always have to say the views expressed here don't necessarily reflect the views of um, you know University of Hawaii or any of our other employers and partners. We've been talking a lot about how people are connected and how they learn about this place and how that kind of anchors them to this place and so we've talked to folks where it's sort of been from childhood and, and food and you know gathering and things like that all the way through you know to some of the biologists who've been kind of studying the diversity and and we are kind of converging into this space and starting to ask questions about
0: you know the rise of interest and, and frankly it's, it's sovereignty right it's, it's the intersection of um, so many different things. It's the intersection of frankly, like native people and their right to exist and 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 be on the land in in ways that frankly, haven't been available to them and to others interested in that lifestyle for a very long time. And those are competing interests.
1: I was going to say, one way that I think about it, 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 it's just this web of life. It's pretty simple, right? And so on one hand, you know, for so long, especially coming from Western science, you know, you get this perspective that people are detached Mm -hmm. from that, right? That, That we're not part of it. Our whole like, you know, mode of production and our lifestyle, and it's not within that web yeah. of life. And when you talk to people who um, connect to the web of life through their work or through growing up, I mean, this is kind of the most meaningful relationship we we mm-hmm. have. And so I think that's kind of where these conversations are are converging, yeah. you know, the different ways in which people have connected and, and are actually kind of realizing their place in all of yeah. that. Yeah,
0: And so today we have an amazing interview with uh, Penny Rollins-Martin, who was one of the first two Wahine women to be on the initial inaugural voyage of the Hokulea, the Hawaiian canoe that was sailed from Hawaii to Tahiti and back in 1976. And it's a very, very meaningful voyage, almost almost 50 50 years years for those of us growing up in Hawaii, because as you'll hear, this just was not done for, for a very, very long time. So it's really cool because not only are we getting into land issues, land access, sovereignty, um, the Hawaiian Renaissance of the 1970s, but we're also taking a, a look at the sea. And as we've been mostly focused on the land, we get to hear the perspective of a wahine on the ocean and what that's like and what that has to teach us.
1: And how it connects to people's uh, across mm-hmm, the Pacific, mm-hmm. right? This sort of reciprocal sharing of yeah. knowledge and 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 sort of movements that this has created and kind of you know really's rippled across the the Pacific um, and and affected so many beyond beyond Hawaii. It was it
0: was it was wonderful. It got to so many of my questions about, um, you know, where. Hawaiian Renaissance, Hawaiian movements for culture, language and sovereignty and land um, intersect or don't intersect with some of those parallel movements we've been talking about um, in the early days in conservation, but when the agencies started getting those things going.
1: Frankly, I think that there was a disconnect there. Obviously, you know, yeah. you have folks kind of like interested in these biological aspects mm-hmm. of of this place. And at that time, I think, you know, we talk about Hawaiian sovereignty movement and and that they were actually connected to the real issues. Right. And yeah. fortunate, yeah. I think because it's all converging today, as far as where and what is at stake mm-hmm. from clean water, all the way up to the tops of the mountain where these species are, are like kind of, you know, we're really clinging to the last remnants of some of these, some of these, um, native ecosystems, but like, you know, we are in a place where we can bring these things together. I think um, from society, right? Like, what are the mm-hmm. issues that we're kind of tackling and need to tackle to really support people, support human needs, all the way up to the kind of larger uh, landscape and and species, all of it. Right? It's like yeah. that web of life. What we're yeah. what we're really. The stories that we're listening to and, and telling, I think how they connect is like how folks kind of find their, their place. Um,
0: yes, it takes all kinds and all different <laughs> approaches, I think, as we're learning in this podcast. <laughs> take, yeah, take that for what it's worth. completely, completely. Um, and so without further ado, I am so excited to present to you Penny Rollins-Martin, Voyager Kanaka Maoli. And teacher with Papahana Kua'ola? Oh, there's so many questions. It's like, you know, like how many years later now? We're talking like 40 years
2: later. 50 years, it's almost. We're like 47 years into our voyage. Wow unreal
0: i know wasn't that just yesterday (laughs) i was just a kid yeah you were just a kid and i was watching some videos and i pulled up some old pictures too and oh my goodness you're just like on the boat and and for our listeners penny can you just tell us about hokulea a little bit and um, you know what 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 it was like for you as the first wahine on that boat there was one other wahine kiani reiner unfortunately she's She's on that other
2: voyage now, so we lost her a while ago. Mm-hmm. But um, she left behind a beautiful son, and now Mo'opuna. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, but so Kiani and I did it together. We're the first two women to do a long voyage on a uh, voyaging Hawaiian voyaging canoe in maybe over two hundred years.
0: Yeah, you know
2: because yeah. built to to replicate. Um, the kind of voyage that our ancestors would have done back in the day, those first people that came and mm-hmm. to once and for all show the world that it was purposeful voyaging on purpose, not accidental drifting. And that they were able to right. bring, you know, the pig, the dog and the chicken with them and plants. And yes, women too. And that's the whole thing that I'm talking about with Nalani now is a Hina, you know, she was a voyager and there were women voyagers in ancient times and But of course, you know, like it or not, they had to bring women if they were going to (laughs) settle. Yeah, so Kat and I were happy to be on that voyage home. From Tahiti to Hawaii because probably the first time that would be the voyage that the women were on, correct? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, you know, the canoe was launched in 75, we did our voyage in 76. The crew that took it to Tahiti did all of the experiments, um, the food experiment, mm-hmm. taking care of the animals, taking care of the plants, the navigation that was like the big deal with Mao Piailu. Right. We still honor and love and are immensely forever Mm -hmm. grateful to Papa Mao for what he has Mm -hmm. done for us, not only just the voyaging, but showed us how to be on a voyaging canoe. Um, You know, he taught us so many lessons, even just like lashing and weaving. And he was like opening the door to the past and he was showing us it was incredible, and I I just cannot even begin to say enough of Papa Mau and how grateful we are. So yeah, so Sunny Six, Kani, and I we were very fortunate to have been chosen to do this voyage. I know that it was because of the very um, persistent advocates that we had in those meetings when they were making the cruise selection. And if not for them, we probably Mm -hmm. would not have been able to go, but they advocated for women on the canoe. If not in Keanu's case, in my case, I would say it was a matter of being in the right place at the right time. And, you know, I didn't think then, but I think now, looking in hindsight at all the work we've done in almost the last 50 years and how I'm still here doing voyaging education you know we like to think that we found hokulea i went down the wharf and i saw hokulea i found her but i now i think well maybe molokai maybe hokulea came to molokai to find us
0: <laughs> i love
2: that yeah. yeah 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 so we were able to go to tahiti and meet the canoe when it came in spend a whole mm-hmm. month in tahiti that was like the perks home together we were expected to do everything that the men did they didn't differentiate between the women and the men we were all crew and i love both crews for that that they treated us as crew members not as women we weren't like the men's crew and a women's crew we were just the crew
0: yeah and how many of you were on that initial voyage? so the voyage
2: to tahiti there were 17 people all men um, okay. And you know, so they had National Geographic. They had the navigators observing the navigators, and then they had the the local boys. So they had seventeen total. We had thirteen, mm-hmm. just all local crew members. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody observing anybody.
1: <laughs> How do you think? You know, you coming on and Keani coming on the crew. Did you feel like? I mean, I'm sure you kind of had a pretty positive vibe as far as like changing the attitude or changing how the how it worked not the sense that like you know you guys were all doing the same tasks but in the sense of just changing the you know the vibe of the of the trip
2: so what happened was they have to reverse go backwards a little bit the canoe is launched and they take the canoe all through hawaii all through hawaii showing the people hawaii their canoe picking out what hopefully potential crew members, right? Letting people experience the canoe. But they were also learning how to sail the canoe at the same time. Because even though this is like a 200-year-old canoe, right, it's the first time for us. It's a brand new. And so we had to learn how to sail it. Um, And so that's, you know, so they're sailing island to island, learning about the canoe, and at the same time, picking up potential crew members, so the last place they went to was Kauai, and on the way back to Oahu, the canoe swamped, and so it was towed back to Oahu by the sea flight. Remember the sea flight? The canoe is shipped home, and it goes to Snug Harbor, and it's on it's now it's two separate hulls, and it's on big barrels on land.
0: Oh my goodness! My
2: call was uh, Aloha, this is Kimo Hugo. Remember me? We met on Molokai how would you like to go to Tahiti on a hook you
1: let
2: me think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Not even, I said, when, when? Right, right. <laughs> this is like, an opportunity that I thought would never have been handed to me, ever. Yeah. I thought I might have been invited to go help prepare the canoes, scrub halls, whatever. I didn't even dream that big, right? like being an actual crew member. So, you know, he said a letter would follow, invited me to go to Oahu, where we would meet the other candidates. We were still candidates for the crew. Mm. And we would go out on training sales, and then they would make the final cut and then those people would go. And I think they were looking at only one crew yeah. to go and come back. But that thing happened when they were leaving Kauai. And so when we get to Oahu, there's our training canoe sitting on dry dock, two separate halls, you know, like what's going on here. So we, <laughs> all of us that were invited down ended up putting the canoe back together again. All our training time was spent on land actually, putting Hokulea back together again. A couple of good things happened out of that. We got to know the canoe pretty intimately
0: yeah, because we
2: had mm-hmm. to put it all back together. We got to know each other pretty intimately because at first we were going down there just on the weekends, but we realized this project was not a weekend project. No. <laughs> we needed <laughs> right. to live there. So we all quit our jobs yeah. and left our homes and went to live at Snug Harbor in a Madsen container. Wow with a garden hose for a shower and a stinky portable toilet that never got serviced.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we didn't even have a
2: tent over the holes. I think we just worked out in the hot sun. But
0: keeping it real in those days, I mean <laughs> just down keeping to the basics. It real right. For
2: us the project was so big. We were so excited that it was it was like the best time of our life, you know. It could have been yeah. the Ritz-Carlton
1: for us, um, right?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. Like
1: immersed in the work, lost in the work. Oh, we, yeah.
2: We're so we we became so close living there like that and working mm-hmm. together on Hokulea. We became close to each other, to Hokulea, and then to Mao. Mao was there with us towards the end too. So it, you know, I like to think that our voyage actually began there. And yeah. so by the time the canoe actually went into the water. And we sailed. We were already a crew that was so peely, you know. That your question about this is a long way to get to your answer to your question about if can, can <laughs> and I change the dynamics. Um, the dynamics is already there. You know what I'm saying? Right. We were already yeah, this yeah. crew, and so we sailed home. It wasn't anything different from being at the container.
0: Yeah. Right.
2: Back in the day, we didn't have the luxury to say, well, we're just going to wait for the right weather or it's not quite ready yet. We're going to push it back. No, it's scheduled for May 1st. We're going on May 1st. That was it, you know. Now we know better, right? The kind of yeah. canoe has its own time. But um, yeah, yeah. so that's how it was. So by the time we actually yeah. sailed, we were all so close already, both crews, because yeah. um, they took all of us that stayed at the container and showed that commitment. And divided us, divided us into two crews. And so even though we had the crew to Tahiti and the crew back, we were all one crew before we even sailed.
1: Yeah, you had that. It was totally complete family
2: beforehand. That was a pretty wonderful time for all of us.
1: I have a question about, kind of related to the Papa Mao's involvement. And, you know, I've worked and lived in Micronesia and the, kind of waves that Hokulea has, has kind of started is incredible. When you go out, you know, visiting Guam, like there's people on these canoes going inner Island now, like different groups. It's kind of all over. There's a big program like in Saipan, uh, trying to just get as many out. And I feel like that's this sort of, uh, you know, rent like whatever. It got a lot of Renaissance. I mean, it's kind of cliche, but just this, what that whole, um, project started and i'm well,
2: it definitely was uh, i was gonna i sorry to interrupt you but it definitely was a renaissance time in 'seventy six. Right. you know
1: yeah definitely 100 uh, percent. i guess my question though is like trying to understand or, or imagine like what he, coming from uh you know outer islands on yap like how much he kind of saw i just imagine him like understanding the importance and the significance of this and i think a lot today about just relationships with micronesians here and that kind of you know uh, just example of sharing and i'm kind of curious how much you thought maybe he saw ahead right
2: yeah so his island and i'm sure many other islands as well like Sadawal, maybe saipan was too modern already and guam is pretty modern but um the outer islands where papa lived and where the other navigator papa wasn't the only navigator he was the only one that would come he was the one that said if we don't go help the hawaiians they're asking for help if we don't go help the hawaiians who's gonna come help us when we forget you know he was like we're gonna help them and then when we forget they're gonna come help us because he could see, he said, "Look, look around you. Um, the younger people—they're not wanting to to learn this. They want right. to go to uh, Saipan. They want to go right. Western College. They want to go." He said, "They want to go disco. They want to drive cars. You know, <laughs> yeah. Listen to yeah. listen to hip hop now. That's yeah. what- <laughs> and so he could see that they had a good chance to lose this knowledge, like how we had lost track of it." For over 200 years, you know? Yeah. And so he said, our own children are wanting to learn. And here we have the Hawaiians asking, we should go help them. Yeah. And then when we forget, they can come back and help us.
1: Yeah, it's like incredible. I know.
2: I know. He's like Yoda. Yoda.
1: <laughs> yeah like just exactly
2: like thinking so far ahead of so far like where this is going right, to go right he had such a vision you know but at that time when they went to go speak with Mao they were still they were and still are sailing canoes in all those islands they still navigate yeah. in the mm-hmm. old yeah. way yeah. so you know they never completely lost that um and even when we are in Tahiti There were still little sailing canoes you know that we saw like people going out one two people going out putting their sail up i never even thought to sail my canoe here you know we did it we forgot about sailing in hawaii Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. mao and them they were still you know and and i'm sure part of them retaining their knowledge was out of survival because he was telling us that the amount of fish that was close to the island was getting less and less and they were having to go further and further to gather food, and so, um, you know, on um, uh, places like Sarawak, which is just um atolls, you only have to go a little bit out to see and you lose sight. You know, when the tallest thing is a coconut tree, and so you need the navigator to bring you back, you know, you need to retain that knowledge, if anything, for survival, right? So, um, yeah, they were still sailing when we went to talk to Mao and he knew everything about sailing and canoes and being out at sea and surviving out at sea. I think, though, in the last 50 years, it's a good thing he did that because he did start to see um, the interest dwindle. So it's a good thing he made that move when he did, which is probably why it's still happening in Micronesia. Because of that, I think it might have, yeah. like how it happened here, yeah. been completely lost to them. But, you know, the other navigators... They didn't want him to do it. And in fact, he was shunned for the longest time. Wow. By the other navigators, right. because that knowledge was for them. That was sacred, you know, that wasn't mm-hmm. meant to go outside mm-hmm. of their culture to be shared right. with other people. And they didn't have that vision that Mao had. But before he died, um, there was a big celebration at Sadawal and he was celebrated by the other navigators who came to see and understand.
1: It's come full circle already. Like that's these guys that are doing this on Guam and back into this sailing. And it's like, you know what I mean? It's like that there is interest growing again now because they see how important it was here. His
2: sons are totally involved and a navigational school was established and also a canoe, uh, fiberglass and wood canoe was built for Mao as a gift. Is primarily um, spearheaded by the people from Hawaii Island and everybody helped in the project. And then the canoe was sailed to Sadawal and given to Mao. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. called the maisu because it's for everybody. So they have the maisu there. They have the navigational school set up. His sons, they're still in touch with the navigators from here. There's still that interaction with his ohana. His fear of it dying out in Micronesia was probably saved at that moment that he said yes to us. But what a vision, right? Yeah. What a vision. And, you know, when Nainoa sailed home with us in seventy six, I remember him just—you knew he was going to navigate because he's always looking up at the stars and writing things down. And when we got back, you know, and I know I had the means to and the backing to be able to go to Sarawal and get Mao and bring him back to teach him. Along with the help of Selka from the planetarium at uh, the Bishop Museum.
0: Bishop Museum. So they were able yeah. to
2: they were able to train Nainoa between Wilka Selka and Mao Piailu, we were able to train our first Hawaiian celestial navigator or wayfinder, you know, in over two hundred years.
0: It's amazing. And then
2: since then you know the story. We have many now Hawaiian navigators that are very good at what they do. And many of them were in that pole ceremony that Mao did in Sadawal that had not been done for over 50 years where they actually... Like in Hula, you have Uniki where you go to a different level and you eventually become Kumu.
0: It's Mm kind
2: of like Mm -hmm. that. They went through that pole ceremony and Mao was able to pole them before he passed away. That's what a gift, yeah. So, you know, we went from... We went from no Hawaiian navigator to several Po navigators. Yeah. Right. We also have women navigators, very good women navigators like Ka'iulani Murphy and Chantel Lopez, I think her last name is now, and Moana Doi, Pomai Burman, Katz Fuller, bunny kahapea then. The younger generation she she's captain of her own vessel the Kanehonomoku, that just celebrated 20 years i mean yeah
0: it's huge i have a question i have a couple questions for you mm-hmm. and take as long cuz they're kind of like big ones to say that your work is based in Malama aina is like an understatement right but i'd love to hear how you know you got connected with the land of growing up um, in molokai and and the sea and then I also want to, you know, Clay and I are so curious about the energy of the 1970s. These are big questions we've had, you know, <laughs> the Renaissance days and um, how how hokulea fit into that and to the other things that were going on at the time, et etc. Right. I'd just like to hear about your growing up and then and then that that time period. Well,
2: so you know, growing up on Molokai, my mother was, you know, I was born in 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 the 50 in 52. And my mother and them were that generation that was encouraged to to not speak Hawaiian and embrace the new way. You know, for survival, I'm sure. My grandmother yeah. was pure Hawaiian and she still spoke Hawaiian at home, but she didn't encourage my mom and them to because she could see what was happening. Mm -hmm. You know, she wanted them to speak English and be able to get along in that new Western world in Hawaii and be able to survive. So then I come along, the next generation, I don't even have a Hawaiian name. You know, my grandmother (laughs) was passed away by then and yeah, which sucks, but you know, that's okay. Your name is your name. That's what you're given. You live with it. But um, I grew up in Kalamaula on the South shore of Molokai. Mm -hmm. This is my grandmother's homestead. I just signed a new lease because we have come up on 99 years of the same homestead. This has always been our homestead. My neighbor next door has always been our neighbor, the neighbor across the street. We've been here for, yeah, almost 100 years. The same families. Amazing. So this is was my grandmother's, and then she, you know, she left it to my aunt who moved away, and then my aunt left it to my mom, and this is where you know my mom and then were raised, where we were raised, and my boys part time raised. They have a great affection for this aina as well. So we lived on North Shore Kalamula, and um, it wasn't the best land to grow crops or anything like that, but. Uh, we knew how to harvest food from the ocean. I mean, we had our like mango trees and coconut trees. And I think my mom and them had some really good gardens when they were going out. They raised chickens, you know. She talks about going outside and killing the chicken for dinner, stuff like that. (laughs) And my neighbors, they always, oh, and we did too. My uncle raised his pigs here. My neighbors had their pigs, you know. So mm-hmm. it was real homesteading and we raised, we we're very sustainable. Uh, you know, every yard we had an emu. they had an emu. Um, that kind of thing. And we did a lot of crabbing and fishing, ketchup, opai, alo. Um It wasn't uncommon for us to just go outside and whack a couple of and bring it in for lunch, you know. <laughs> or we could eat crab today and go outside and get a bucket of crabs. Yeah. And so along with that, we also learned. To take only what you need be careful of like for instance when we went to yeah. crab check to see if that was female or male and if it was a female did it have eggs if you had eggs you put it back and then my uncle then would look this is mm-hmm. too small why are you catching this one for it's too small you know right. that kind mm-hmm. of thing so mm-hmm. and it wasn't like like we were in school learning this it was just life it was life lessons and how we grew up and what they knew and they were sharing it with us you know of course we were a little bit kolohe, too, like my uncle had his flat bottom out here and everything was koo, yeah. You know you know about koo? When mm-hmm. you get the stick and you push the boat with the ko'o. So you stand up in the boat and you have this long stick and you stick it in the mud and mud flats and you propel the boat using a ko'o. Molokai uh-huh. South Shore is known for Ko'O because have all this um, shallow water inside and we're able to push our boats along with the coal. it was a common thing okay. so we used to take my uncle's boat with the ko-o. We weren't supposed to right yeah go cruising and go and it was fun if we we're going in the direction of the wind but coming home was a bit of a challenge i <laughs> yeah, would be like oh, oh we're in trouble now because the wind's blowing against us that kind of thing but that's how we grew up um we also my mom was a single mom and so um she had five of us and my uncles were very, her brothers they were very influential in our lives. In fact, the whole family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were raised by the village. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was great. If that was our situation, then we couldn't be in a better place than Molokai because we always felt safe. We were just, you know, we live south shore of Molokai, which is like in the middle. Kalamula is like right in the middle, a mile from town. It's all mud flats. So There's a big, the fringing reef about a mile out. The Kalamula, all us kids, we all knew each other. We pretty much all went to the same church, all of that. So I went to Kanakakai school.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: Sundays, you'd all know, like walk down to the pier, Kanakakai Wharf, and go swimming because the deeper water, you know. Um, and we would, I don't want to say steal pineapples because I think they knew we were doing it.
1: Right, pick pineapple.
2: <laughs> we take pineapples off the barge, and that would be our snack. You know, we just take the pineapples off the barge and smash them on the cement and eat pineapples for a snack. But that's the way we grew up. I, you know, my uncle's all hunting. We would bring the deer over here and hang the deer from our hollow tree and skin it. And we all learned how to skin a deer when we were really young and how to help cut up the meat and all that. It was just. Just lifestyle, you know, cool. things that we learned growing up. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because of that lifestyle, we knew where the food comes from. Aina, place where the food comes from. And so then you learn to malama that place. Yeah. Because that's where your food comes from, right? And so um, then fast forward to being on Hokulea, if you think about it, those voyaging canoes, they're like little islands. He moku, hei he, he moku right your canoe is like an island your island is like yep, yep.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: you have limited water you have limited food you're sharing a limited amount of space with other people you have to be aware of each other and aware of how your behaviors affect each other and your resources and you know all of that. It's but that's not just on the canoe that's exactly how your island is and so if you learn how to live on the va'a, it will make you a better steward of your island because mm-hmm. it's the exact same. Can you run out of water on your island? Of course you can. We think not, but of course you can. Right. Um, so your your resources aren't, um, aren't going to be there forever if you don't malama them.
1: You mentioned about the part of the crew dynamic, and I feel like that's such a strong lesson like for society like like the crew on the islands thinking about how we do and don't take care of people right, right? in in the society like the it sort of reflects the way that we sometimes do and don't care for you know the things that that provide like water food you know the forest all yeah. of the the landscape that we kind of value
2: yeah so it is a kako thing and we all share uh, yeah you know this canoe called molokai and um you know, and, and Molokai is funny that way because we, you know, you go to meetings and you have factions of people and, you know, we're all like giving our own mana'o and we don't always all agree. Surprise. But, um, <laughs> when it comes to the times when we do have to come together and rally, um, it, it happens. It happens. We can disagree at meetings and fight with each other, but in the end, we can also hug it up. Yeah. And be friends again. A good example of that is we protested the building of the $100 million homes at Lao Point, you know? Yeah. Um, and we stood up to Molokai Ranch. And there were Molokai people working for the ranch at that time that, you know,
0: mm-hmm. we were
2: on opposite sides with our friends and our even family. But in the end, in the end, everybody saw that that just could not happen. And we were able to stand up to the ranch and shut that down. And we're all able to live with the consequences. There were major consequences, like, you know, like Molokai Ranch threatened and said that they would, you know, pull out. They couldn't afford not to run things and not have that project done. So yeah, the theater and the town shut down. The big hotel shut down. You know, koi down in the west end, the hotel is a disaster right now. But even with that, I think most of the island is in agreement that that was a good thing, that we stopped that project. You know, and so the people of Molokai, they are hardy. They're resilient. And they are able to come back and move forward and, and handle those challenges, you know. Mm-hmm. So... When I came back from Hokulea, um, I did a whole bunch of things. I moved to Oahu with, my, with David, who is my husband now, and he was building boats for, for local fishermen. And then in 92, 91, we moved home so he could be a taro farmer here. And I was looking for work. And one of the gardens foundation was hiring for the first time off island. They came to Molokai to look for somebody to do their work here on Molokai. And I got hired. So they were doing cultural-based environmental education, much like Malama Aina, Pauline's project. But we were teaching um, geology, geography, native plants and animals, human impact. But say if we taught geology, we'd teach about the plates, you know, plate tectonics. But we'd also talk about Maui, putting the islands out of the sea. you know, And we'd talk about Pele's voyage from Kahiki.
0: So, yeah, Mm -hmm, so mm
2: -hmm. I did that. I worked for them since then. And I also, that was a part time job. So, I also worked part time for the Maui AIDS Foundation as a tester, counselor, and outreach educator. So, people just like, wow, those two jobs couldn't be so different, you know? But actually, they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Love to tell this story. I was up in the forest. Yeah. And we're looking at um, chydemia that noxious weed that grows up mm-hmm. and I said and here we have chlamydia." Oh. and the people in <laughs> yes. the crowd were like well isn't that a
0: <laughs> and I was like,
2: I was like you're correct and you know what yep. that is bad for you and so is this so is Clydymia. and <laughs> you know so I always said, yeah chlamydia, it's all the same it's bad for you That's you don't awesome. want it here and the same values that it takes to keep you um, protected from chlamydia and to protect the forest from chlamydia, they're the same values. I love that. You know what I'm saying? Chlamydia, chlamydia. It doesn't matter. Diseases. Um, you have, <laughs> totally. to have the same values. Anyway, that's a funny story that I like to share. So I was working for the Maui AIDS Foundation for a long time too, for about twenty years. But um, eventually, just wow. most recently. Um, we, we moved from the, from Waterloo Gardens Foundation to Papahana Kua Ola mm-hmm. on Oahu, mm-hmm. which is a nonprofit to the Huiku Maoli Ola. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Huiku Maoli Ola started Papahana Kua Ola and offered for us to be under their umbrella so we could do the work that we are trained to do mm-hmm. in the manner that we are trained to do it. And so we're with them today. We have a different focus every year, but we still teach. If a teacher wants to come in and talk about geology, I'll do it, or geography. But then we have some things that we highlight every year. Um, Like this year, our focus was ahupua, and um, teaching them about not just what an ahupua is and what you find on the ahupua, but also having that ahupua mindset, you know, from Hauka to Makai and, and yeah, how important all those resources are. And that everything is yeah. connected, the ocean and the land. Yeah. And everything that you do on the land affects the ocean, right? Yeah. The ocean is part of your Ahupua. And so if you care for the land, you're going to care for the ocean as well. I mean, it's not disconnected. It's not two things. It's all one thing. And so our focus this year is Ahupua, but I have... Um, I have gone in and taught geology this year, and um, I have a request from a teacher to talk about Polynesian migration. Um, Today, I'm going to go up to Kualapu School and do storytelling, talk about some of my favorite places on Molokai and the experiences that I've had at those places, because the kids next week are going to be writing about their favorite places and their experiences. So. We're kind of broad at what we do, but it's all—it's all about aloha aina. I take them out on field trips. Um, we've formed a partnership with the Molokai Land Trust. We got to Mokio. We've planted—I can honestly say that we've planted since we formed that partnership thousands of plants with students, our native plants. And we're—I just have—I have some field trips coming up. We just did a field trip last week to Mokio, pulled out invasive species. Um, from the area. So we're either planting, pulling out invasive species, collecting seeds, and also we take time to to visit the site and show them all the archaeological sites and talk about how, why that site is so important and why the work that we're doing there is so important.
0: Yeah, so love my job. <laughs> yeah, you've been at it for you know, a very long time, Penny. and um, <laughs> gosh, I mean, Yeah, I'm just curious, like, kind of going back to the historical perspective, because like, but can you tell us, can you paint the picture for, you know, our audiences, uh, you know, who may or may not know about the energy of the 1970s, like, and how it is the same or different, uh, you know, with Aloha Aina movements today?
2: I wish I could be this age that I am now and have the knowledge that I have now. (laughs) And be yeah. there at that time. It would have been, you know. Like, so I was like, you know, turned right. twenty-four into eighty right before I sailed home. And you know, we were not taught anything about Polynesian migration
0: mm-hmm. in the schools. Yeah,
2: I learned about Lewis and Clark and the wagon train. Oh right. I knew more about that than our sailing canoes. And the, so this is like. For me, a a lot of it was just new and it was like, whoa, this is the kind of people we come from? They can build these great crafts and sail them using the natural resources available to them and find their way to this little speck Mm -hmm. of land Mm -hmm. in the middle of the sea, you know? How phenomenal is that? And then to know that The people that came with them were botanists and doctors and fishermen, great fishermen. And just to realize how talented our people were and how resourceful they were and how courageous. I mean, think about that very first canoe that made it here. You know, balls to the walls. (laughs) We're going to do this. We're going to put ourselves on this vessel And, yeah. and sail to the unknown. Unreal. We think there's island out there. We've been looking at the migratory birds. They got to be stopping someplace, right? We kind of fixed us a map using the stars following their migrational yeah. pattern. Almost guarantee you would have island out there. But, you know, it was like not 100% no. yet, right? <laughs> and then to place themselves on these vessels right. and just go for it. And, and then actually yeah. find it, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Like faith, right? And your
1: skills yeah. and your knowledge.
2: Right. So I always think about that. And then to learn the pride in, when you learn those things, the pride that comes to you with that knowledge, it's like, yeah, I am Hawaiian. I come from these kind of people, you know? Mm-hmm. They were great people, great yeah. navigators, great craftsmen, doctors athletes. Just, it was crazy. And, you know, Hokulea was going on at that time, and then on Molokai, a lot of the work for Kaholavi this was like the center. You know, all the, a lot of the meetings were held here. George is from here. Walter was here. Emmett moved here. A lot of meetings were held here. You know, Richard Sawyer was living here. So even before I went to Hokulea, I had attended several of the Kaholabe meetings. And so that was going on. And when I was going two hokulea just on the weekends and coming home, you know, it would be hokulea on the weekends and come home, it would be kaholabe meetings here. And then, and then, you know, the talk of Hawaiian language coming back and more, meeting more and more people that were learning Hawaiian or that knew Hawaiian and were not afraid to speak it anymore. And, And then even the hula schools, you know, they were doing more like, like, Real hula, not the shalangalang, mm-hmm. Dorothy Lamour, and yeah. back in the old movie days with the cellophane skirt, you know, doing the, the the ancient chants, and it was just, and you know, not only Hokulea and Kaholawe, but on, on Oahu, I remember all of us heading down from Snug Harbor to Waihole to protest the mm-hmm. the taking of the water and you know and to encourage the return of the water to Waiholi there's a big concert in Waiholi Valley that we went to and went down there to show um, support of that movement and then on Molokai, the Hui Alaloa organization, was organi- they were formed and they were um, organizing marches to the West End to protest the lockup. Yeah. Of, you know, we were growing up on Molokai, you just couldn't go to any West End. You had to go through all these gates, you had to get permission from the ranch, you had to get keys. And Hui Alaloa said, you know, no, we are Hawaiians, we have gathering rights, we need right. to have access to all beaches and so they arrange you know organize all these marches it's pretty incredible for that time because you know even even hopefully as beautiful as it was and you know everywhere it went people came down and was in awe of it and embraced it it was still like the old timers and, and a lot of people that still said well, what you guys going to do this for you know mm. or or the ones that landed on Kaholabe, look at them, they're just troublemakers, you know, Um, Hmm. supposed to listen to the military and not fight them, you know, that kind of thing. But these were, this is a whole new generation that said, why do we have to listen to them? And why are they continuing to bomb? And then, you know, it, we slowly saw the, those kupuna that came out in the 70s to, to advocate for, for us, for Hokalea, and to support the movement on Kaholawe and to march in those Hui Alaloa marches. They were awesome. And we, you know, the presence of the kupuna and the support of those kupuna were so important um, for the movements. It gave validation, you know. Yeah. So, you think about them, you know, they were raised in a whole different time from us. Yeah. And here they are coming to the meetings and supporting all of this. Isn't pretty, um, pretty cool. Um, those were like real kupuna, very strong.
0: I was just going to say, it's kind of amazing to think about the generation before you coming into that space when it would have been so risky to do that for them, growing up suppressing the language and, and so forth. And I, I maybe think that's a perspective that some of the younger folks may or may not know. Well,
2: I also think that there was, you know, they were told not to, right? They were told to not speak Hawaiian. Or my grandmother, like she she encouraged, my, my, my grandmother still spoke Hawaiian at home, but she encouraged my mom and them to learn English because I saw, that. I think she saw this as, like I said earlier, survival. Yeah. But I don't think... That the kupuna, even though they're encouraged not to, I don't think that their desire to speak their Hawaiian and practice their culture ever wavered. And so when they had this opportunity to advocate for kawalawe and hokulea and participate in these marches, it was like they could finally, you know, come out and be who they are. That's what I think. I think. This was their um, way to come back and to come out and be able to share again, and you know, without being suppressed. It was it was a kind of a. I look back on it, it was an exciting time. Even something as simple as the music at that time. You look at Olomanaya, Ku'u Home o Kahalu'u. I remember, right? I remember days when we were younger. <laughs> we used to catch a in the mountain streams, yeah. you know. Even the music reflected what was going on at the, and how people were feeling. Manalo mm-hmm. Blues, yeah? The beaches they sell to build the hotels my fathers yeah. and I once knew. Olamana, Liko Martin, Kalapana, Country Comfort, uh, even Gabby and them, and I remember when um, Sunday Manoa came out with their first album. That music was like, <laughs> whoa! What is this? You know, this is great. Amazing. It was so different. It was different, and it wasn't. You know, it was a reminder of the music from before. It was in a whole cool way. It was like, whoa! Yeah. 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 Sunday Manoa, what a great album! And then um uh, the Sons yeah. of Hawaii with yeah. Pahinui in them, and then and then Eddie Kamai in them. You know, so yeah, even the music was a reflection of what was going on at the time. It was very exciting.
0: Now you're really taking me back because. That's really the only kind of music I want to listen to. <laughs> Not, uh, you know, sorry, sorry, contemporary Hawaiian musicians. I know it's awesome what you're doing, but I kind of partial to that time period. <laughs> but um, it's so honored. The music is so honored. It's all of it is so good. I put the music on the TV. Um, But how would you connect, you know, that energy to maybe what is or isn't happening today, you know, with, with Aloha Aina from your long perspective?
2: In the 70s, they laid, you know, George Helm reminded us about Aloha Aina. I truly believe it was a concept that some of us had never heard or maybe had forgotten didn't realize that when we were growing up and we were being taught you know, not to take the female Mm -hmm. with the eggs that that was actually aloha aina you know what I mean it didn't have a label on it it was a practice that we were taught to do but um, along the way as we got older and stuff and the next generations came up I think we started taking things for granted and so that was good that George came along and said hey remember aloha aina we got to bring this concept back we got to do something about this and why not start with kaholawe Why are they still bombing that island? Why are we allowing this? And so I I think that was like the the springboard, the foundation that was laid for where we are at now. And and it just grew and grew and grew into what it is now. There's so many um, organizations now that are doing something about aloha aina. I mean, aloha aina has become a common term now. There's a greater awareness of this than ever before, an intentional awareness, you know. Yeah. And I think, you know, organizations like like ours, we're trying to make sure that it's not just this movement, but we wanted to make sure that people could see how you know, taking care of the land, under, understanding how to take care of the land, and understanding how how islands are, like the life of the islands and how it works and how everything works. We wanted to also make sure that people were culturally connected and how mm-hmm. important it was mm-hmm. to our culture. You know, and I think today more and more, like my mom Probably realize probably realized that, you know? And then along the way, we kind of forgot. And now we're going back to like, yeah, this is what being Hawaiian is, you know? Aloha aina. We are connected to this land. Everything about being Hawaiian yeah. is about this land. Um, so I think, you know, um, we went through that period of time where that Renaissance happened and then we started moving forward and then it has picked up speed.
0: Yeah, 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 definitely.
2: Especially when now with the availability of technology, financial backup, like, you know, there's a whole, all the grants that are out there so people can do something about things, you know, and have the financial backup. I just think things have picked up speed. But I also want to make sure that cultural attitude, the cultural, I don't know how to say it doesn't get affected you know. in the uh, movement to aloha aloha aina, that we keep that humility about us and remember who we are, where we came from, and uh, what our kuleana as Hawaiian people, or even just as people living on these islands, remember what our kuleana is. It's really not about us, but it's about taking care of this aina and remembering that we are just stewards of this land and if not leaving it the same but better for the the future you know and under, and also understanding the way the islands are and not forcing not forcing them to a lifestyle on them that is not natural you know we need to really begin to understand the island's lifestyle and and be able to flow with it and be able to be that kind of steward that um, embraces the island's lifestyle, and and we are here to to support that and to um to be good stewards. I have a question.
1: Um,
0: it so makes total sense? sense.
1: Yeah, and my question is, I think about your work with environmental education, and I'm curious. You spoke about talking about springboards. I feel like in the 70s, you sort of you know folks identified what the real fight was for the land the real the real core of it right was about who like why are we letting them do this like as you said and i'm curious how you view environmental education today with youth especially as like a springboard to maybe understand these bigger Right, political questions, and or not even political questions, historical injustice, right? Like what the point of all of these things are, and how you kind of view that, maybe as a way um, to get kids to understand what that movement like continues to be about.
2: So definitely, we try to make the kids understand that this wasn't just you know, Kaolawi wasn't just about standing up to the military and you know, defying them, but what they was what they were doing was wrong. And if anybody did that, that would have been wrong. You know, you just don't. Our lands are sacred. This is the place that feeds us. This is where we live. Mm -hmm. Why are we bombing the hell out of it? You know, like that. And if you're going to allow that to happen, what's to stop anything else? You know, what they needed to understand was what they were doing was wrong. And, um, and we shouldn't allow anything like that to happen in these islands. Look at on Hawaii Island, Puakuloa and Makua Valley on Oahu, you know, that's still going on. And, and I know that people are trying to um, bring attention to those places and do something about it. But I think that um, with kaholave when we talk about, I still talk about it, with the school children today, you know, we, we did a whole, we teamed out with Pacific American Foundation and we did a video and we did, um, some curriculum on Kaholawe that was connected to Aloha Aina. But, um, we wanted the kids to know that the bombing on Kaholawe wasn't just to defy the military. It just should never even have happened, period. Right. That's it's, not what you do. That's right. not how you malama Aina. And Kaholawe is a, example of when you stop that and when you start taking care of the island how the island can recover and how it can come back with care you know and Kaholave is a is a like the, that shining example of look if you care for the island, the island can care for you and if we can help Kaholavi to heal and if Kaholvi can recover, just think what we can do on all these islands.
0: Yeah, it's so powerful.
2: And it is such a simple
1: like story in the sense that like what's right. It is What is the right thing? It's so easy for, for kids to yeah. understand.
2: You know, yeah, what is the right thing? Well, I'm, you know, <laughs> bombing the right thing. I mean... <laughs> oh, just straightforward, right? <laughs> and I'm surprised that they got away with it for so long. Uh, but, you know, when my mom and them... When they were here and the military came to Hawaii, they full supported the military on the island, you know. I remember we had a Marine base down by the airport, and we used to watch all the Marines march by our house, you know, down the highway, and we used to get, like... Treats from them, and I remember having my um, this marine shovel that folded up and stuff. I thought that was just like the coolest thing, and you know, I <laughs> got one of their helmets, and they would give us like Eminem candies, and I mean, it was like they were like cool, they were friends, and they were fun, and never even thought. Well, and I was a kid too, like I never even thought about like why the hell are they here. You know, why do they need to be a Molokai? I never even questioned that or thought about it, you know. And my mom and them, the, the elders, the older people, they just, you know, my uncles were all in the military. They got, you know, they went, my one uncle went to Korea, one was in Norman. They were in the army. So my mom and them, you know, they were trying to be good citizens and support the military and stuff. So they didn't question the military's continued presence on Kauai. You know, they were there because they needed some training grounds for the war, but the war was over for a mm-hmm. long time and they were still bombing, you know. And do you notice that the U.S. military does all this at other places, not in their place? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't see too much bombing and training going on in North yeah. America. <laughs> we still have um, barbed wire in my <laughs> yard. We, I, I still have a um, a gun. A gun thing in my yard, you know, one of those cement oh, yeah. Yeah. in my yard um, that was used. The military used it to protect the south shore of Molokai. It's in full. It's still intact. It's in great condition. And um, my mom said the military would come here. It was. It was um, 24/7. They kept watch and they put barbed wire all around our yard. Our yard is an acre. We have an acre homestead. barbed wire all around it and they would uh, the military would have people on watch all the time in this pillbox in our yard so my mom and them as young women they had the presence of military on the homestead on doing world war ii after pearl harbor was bombed yeah and it's still here
0: yeah reminder of that
2: time um and my mom was a telephone operator at the time on molokai she said yeah get calls that people would call in and said that they saw you know enemy ships outside that they were afraid they wanted to report mm-hmm. sightings and so you know for my mom and them their relationship the military mm-hmm. they saw them as their mm-hmm. defenders mm-hmm. their protectors right sure at different times yeah.
0: we're just so grateful that you could take time <laughs> given how busy you are to, to meet with us
2: so people always ask me you know, what do you do on Molokai and I'm like I don't even have time to tell you it's crazy (laughs) 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 just got back from Oahu last week we actually got to sail for a little not sail we went out and we came back in it but been
1: pretty light winds until today.
2: Oh, no, no. <laughs> what happened was we thought it was like we went out on Hokulea for a little sunset sail. And I was all excited because the crab claws did, the crab claws are still up. And um, that's what we sailed with, right? In 76, the crab claw sails. That's amazing. So we went out. Um, but the ocean got so huge. <laughs> the wind picked oh, up. Oh, yeah. It got-
1: you had south winds last yeah. week. Yeah.
2: It got kind of gnarly out there, and we were like, "Okay, we are not opening up the crab claws because we'd be flying all over the place." Very oh cool. my gosh! It's kind of nice because it was generational, so there mm-hmm. are people from all the different um, different years of sailing, and um, people that I were really familiar with, and then not. But um, and then, of course, Hokulea has mm-hmm. has changed cosmetically. You know, um, she's been renovated, and um, things have been added on, and you know, mostly for safety and stuff. Um, so when you look at her, she looks a little different, but when you're on Hokulea, all those yeah, old feelings come back. And you know, it's like Yeah being with Mama yeah. again. And she, I just feel her embrace and I almost, almost feels like she's happy Guaranteed. to see us, you know? Guaranteed. to be there. I, I wanna think that she's happy Oh, I bet. <laughs> to see me as I am to see her. <laughs> it's it's a it's a wonderful feeling. It's hard to describe. It. A lot of memories yeah. and feelings come back. Yeah, but, you know, I'm talking about this as somebody. Else. When we were there in 70, when we came home in 76, if if you had asked me what I thought would happen to uh, uh where this whole thing was going to, how it's going to move forward, or if it was going to move forward, um, I just thought that, Okay, the first crew, they had gone to Tahiti, they had done all the experiments. I would honestly say that most of it was 100% well done. And so then our job was just to bring Hokulea back and we did that. And now it would go down in the history books. And all those um, things that were said about the first people that came accidentally and stuff that would be um, rewritten as purposeful voyaging. And then the great voyages would be celebrated. That's what I thought. And then Hokulea would become Mm. like a floating museum. I never thought that she would hanao more canoes, (laughs) you know, give birth to more canoes and that, almost 50 years later, there'd be a number of voyaging canoes in Hawaii and a number of voyages that have been made since then and all for more reasons, different yeah. reasons, you know. And that, um, that voyaging would become so much uh, a regular part of our lives in Hawaii today. Because, you know, when we were growing up, we had, you know, I was paddling from my local club. I always, mm-hmm. I've been paddling since I was like ten years old, and the canoe has always seemed magical to me. Um, I, I'm, you know, almost six feet, and Connie and I were almost wow. the same height. They called us the two Amazons. <laughs> and when you're when you're this size, when you're this size, growing up. You, um, people think that you're just going to be this great basketball player, this great volleyball player, whatever. (sighs) I am so clumsy and my timing is way off. I I cannot run... I cannot run and dribble a ball. I can't, like, hit a baseball. My cousin couldn't believe it because my Rollins family they are baseball players. We were at a family reunion, and I was on his team, and he's like, come on, quit fooling around. "Eh," You know, like, hit the ball. I go, that's how I hit. He goes, are you kidding me? That's how you hit? You know, or, like, (laughs) volleyball. Everybody thinks I was going to be this (laughs) great spiker. And, you know, but I'm so clumsy and uncoordinated. And I was just like to find my place, you know, and and we always paddled our own little canoes here. We used to make our little own canoes out of the corrugated iron and two by fours and we made our own paddles out of sticks and stuff. So we always like were padding some kind of little homemade thing. And then I joined the canoe club and my my uncles were coaches and my cousins paddled But when I sat in that six man canoe, it was like magic. Yeah. It was like I was comfortable this is my thing, you know, this is my, I have found it. And paddling with six other people, you know, feeling that, that working together, that whole um, feeling of how the boat moves and everybody works together and just feeling the water under the canoe and, it was like, this is it i'm I don't have to play basketball, or volleyball, or baseball. this is it this you know, and so the canoe has always been very magical for me, and then just you know meeting Hokulea that's like a whole different level of canoeness, <laughs> you know of var, yeah. and it was just like even more magical, you know, much greater. So. You know, and the Hawai'i people, we are people yeah. of the canoe. This is how the
0: first people were all connected. That's like the umbilical cord. <laughs> I mean, you know, it strikes me, Penny, because, I, you know, I'm a surfer, but not, you know, never paddled the ever. Uh, grew up on Oahu, but, you know, as a 50-year-old person, (laughs) Um, you know, been watching you guys on the TV and, you know, doing all these amazing voyages and so forth. I mean, that energy that you have, which I look in your face and it's just like it was like the same day as, you know, 1976, Uh. you know, I I can just feel that energy. And that comes across to so many people who may or may not be watermen, waterwomen in Hawaii and elsewhere. And you know, I just wanted to comment on that because it's it's um, thrilling to hear you talk about how you connected with the water and and early on and tried to find your place. Well, you and I are opposite because I suck at surfing.
2: <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, I used to, when I was at Kamehameha Schools, I had a really good friend from Ever Beach, and we would go down and stay at his house and there's a surf spot right next to his house called Empty Lots mm-hmm. yeah. because all of the lots were empty at the time and it was a really hot surfing spot and he had all these old surfboards you know all different sizes under his house and his parents would let us take him out and Ah oh, man when I would go out, everybody would come in because it was almost like oh no Penny's out it's going to be dangerous you know my surfboard is going to be flying everywhere and I'm going to be running into people <laughs> so I tried to surf but I um, yeah I'm so not coordinated but I like the feeling that you get from surfing and riding on that wave and so I have a one man I have a one man and we're able to go out and you know catch the waves on the one man yeah that's fun, yeah. and and you get that yeah. feeling of surfing. That's awesome, honey. Yeah, yeah. So I like taking my one man just <laughs> right out here, and there's a on the high tide. Sometimes there's a good break out by the reef, and it's deep enough that you get that break coming in, and I just go in and out, in and out, catch these nice. rollers, you know, ride them in, yay, go back out, just play. Or sometimes we, um, I have it, you know, we used to go out on the outside. Um, the, they call it the Kamalo Run and I don't like to go out on those epic days anymore uh, survival yeah. kind paddling out there but when it's nice and you can just catch those rollers and string them along and it's yeah. And if you've ever had like, you know, like a really bad day and you get on the water, you know, you probably get on your surfboard and you go out there and you leave it on the ocean. You know, we go out in a canoe, the one man, the six man, and just paddle yeah. hard for a little while and leave yeah. it on the water. It's You come back and you're refreshed. Leave, leave it behind. You know, and you just let the ocean take care yeah. of all that junk stuff.
0: <laughs> uh, it's like baptism. <laughs> yeah wash it away right yeah people often ask that
2: question like how did you feel out there so isolated and you know just disconnected from the ocean i mean from land and um i I said it was the greatest feeling in the world oh yeah yeah (laughs) yeah
1: i wouldn't even think to ask that actually
2: not me (laughs) either we only had to worry about the canoe and each other going to work the next day i mean this was it this was your life and it was so simple take care of the canoe you take care of each other and you bring the canoe home it was it was such a great feeling of freedom yeah you know and then when i went to school on the mainland um in in the midwest they were asking me like wow how can you live on an island like um don't you feel like locked in and I told them, I actually feel locked in here because I can't see the ocean. Yeah. I I never felt so locked in as I was when I lived in the Midwest and going to school in Nebraska because I felt it's I couldn't see the ocean. I was like, oh, no, you know, I'm suffocating. Yeah. And when I can see the ocean, I, I see the ocean as a big highway. You know, I don't feel locked in at all. So it's a different yeah. concept. <laughs> yeah, Nebraska. <laughs> I
0: yeah it's so it's such a different mindset for those um not raised in and around the ocean that folks can't really understand necessarily
2: yeah i don't feel like it's locking us in i feel like it's just an extension of our Mm -hmm. island and we can just it's freedom you know
0: well penny we've we've been on for for a while now and um I, I realize you have so much going on today. It's been so amazing. It's been incredible to talk to you.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thank you
2: so much for that. You know, when you ask about the two women on the canoe. Yeah. And um, like people talk a lot about us being the first two in about the canoe and what we did. But I just wanna give a shout out to all the women today that are not just doing great things on the canoe, but in in All the different venues, and they're just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible women,
1: 100%
2: in Hawaii. 100%. So, shout out to all the Sea Stars.
0: No, I was just going to say we were just talking about women breaking ground in the 1970s, like you, like my professor, you know, incredible. It made it possible for the rest of us.
2: Yeah. Good stuff.